Okay, we're going to continue on talking about parables uh, this this week. We're going to talk about the parable of the prodigal sons. We tried to make that case last week. There are two sons in the story, both a younger son and an elder son. We looked at the story of the younger son last week, and we will look at the story of the elder son this week. Uh, the, the idea that I would like for us to entertain in our hearts as we walk through this text is simply this. A healthy view of the heart of God is proven by a relationship of love-inspired obedience rather than a religious practice of resentful obligation. A healthy view of the heart of God is proven by a relationship of love-inspired obedience rather than a religious practice of resentful obligation. Remember, if the God that we worship does not look like Jesus, then we have recreated a God in our own image. And one of the things that I use as a barometer for the health of my heart is in paying attention to where my motive is. And once my motive moves from love and joy inspired obedience to something on the end of duty and obligation, if I stay in that place too long, I want to pay attention to the state of my heart and pay attention to the narrative of God that I'm entertaining in my mind. Because sometimes I slip from love to obligation. And when that happens, it's resentment rather than mercy that's the atmosphere of my heart. And I know the symptoms. I feel resentful, envious. I have self-pity, despair, anger. And I tend to lean into rebellion over time, which is a toxic attitude or actions. Now, this isn't the only thing that causes that. There are plenty of other reasons why I slip into the flesh. But one of the things I want to be mindful of is if the atmosphere of my heart over a prolonged period of time is not characterized by peace and joy, in my pursuit of God, I want to take a moment, a day, an afternoon, and step back and prayerfully examine the narrative of God that I'm entertaining in my mind, because if I'm not careful, I will get deceived and moved back down to a God that's made in the image of man, rather than the God I see reflected in the life of Jesus, and it can happen so easily. And so, fortunately, God has given us a great gift. It's almost like a built-in alarm system, is when our heart becomes cold and resentful, The first thing that we want to pay attention to is who is the God that we are worshiping? Is it God found in the image of Jesus or is it one that we've created in the image of something else? And and I want to pay attention to that because it might need a work of repentance. An awareness of our inner union with God has to be the source of our spiritual work obligation and duty. There are times when we are called upon in short times that we just have to do what needs to be done. That is not the characteristic flow of the, li- of the spiritual life that Jesus came to model for us. So we want to pay very close attention to that to make sure that our working for God is coming out of our union with God. And so we're really working with God, never working for God. If we get into a mindset too long, we're working for God, it might just be that we've drifted away from the image of deep spiritual partnership that the Father calls us into so that the burdens that we are, that we are carrying for ministry or for the sake of others are in fact light because we are yoked to Jesus. So I would ask you to consider, have you ever been through a season in which Christian religion robbed you of Jesus-centered joy? to where there was a moment where 
There was a liberation and a love for Jesus and a love for God that inspired you to want to uh, live in such a way that honored him and, and live in such a way that you could serve others so that they could see the Father. But then, then maybe you got tangled up in religious obligation that said it's not enough to rejoice over the grace of God. You've, there are a list of behaviors you've got to start to cultivate, a list of behaviors you have to avoid because you somehow need to maintain your purity in order to be used of God. When that happens, then we are now looking to some sort of religious practice as the projection of our spiritual identity rather than just being a trophy of the grace of God that we encountered when we encountered Jesus. And so we have to ask ourselves, and and if you're aware of that, those seasons, you are equipped to be very helpful to help younger believers because many of us wander into this kind of territory. So what about you? Have you ever been through a season in which Christian religion robbed you of Jesus-centered joy? And how have you responded to those seasons in the past? What have you learned from those seasons? Like, like I mentioned before, what, what have you learned is the atmosphere of your heart whenever you've drifted from a healthy view of God to a more toxic view of God. But what about right now? Are you there now? And if you are there now, are you tired enough to seek something more joyful and authentic? Because missing this is what this elder son represents for us all on a personal level. Now, um, let, let's take a moment and turn to our text. Let's just read it. We're going to read verses 1 through 2 and verses 25 through 32. Luke chapter uh, 15, verses 1 through 2. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. Now, I'm going to pause right there on that first sentence. Okay, well, let's, let's read two more. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, as, as I've said before, we, 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 we want to honor the Bible and reading it as his story, their story, then our story and my story. What we're doing with these parables is spending most of our time processing what the revelation of the parable might mean for our story and my story. So we're taking that very focused approach because we're looking at the parables as a means for reminding ourselves how Jesus revealed the heart of God, how Jesus showed us what God is like. But it it is interesting for a few nerds in the room that if we were spending more time on their story, what we would want to point out at this point, and it's, it's important because it grounds the parable within a context. What Jesus is facing is this. He's looking, he is right now in his present experience when he tells this parable, he is looking at the younger son and the elder son. Very clearly, the elder son is a narrative that is intended to speak wisdom to the Pharisees that are watching and complaining because Jesus is spending time with sinners. But remember, these sinners, they weren't Gentiles. Jesus didn't come on a Gentile mission. He came to, uh, on a mission for Israel. So what you have in this context is Pharisees who are very scrupulously following the letter of the law, judging fellow Israelites because they are not living as lawfully or in fact even living lifestyles that have caused them to become unclean to the community. And so 
If someone is unclean, you are to withdraw from them until they go through a process of cleanliness and penance that, that reestablishes their place among fellowship within the community. And Jesus is bypassing all of that and he's entertaining fa- table fellowship with tax collectors and sinners. So he is bringing them into their inner circle of intimacy. They complain and so then he tells these three stories that crescendos are the stories of the two sons. The two sons is different from the lost coin and the sheep in that there's a character that highlights the attitude of the Pharisees. That character is not in the other two parables, but it's very much a dominant theme in this parable. So you have the elder brother responding to the younger brother's return home with the same kind of disgust that the Pharisees are, are, are displaying as they complain that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. So right here in this story, what you see is this. You've got Jesus. Then you've got the Pharisees, the elder brother. Then you've got the tax collectors and sinners, the younger brother. Jesus is illustrated by the father in the story. So we might even say that the father represents the incarnation of God who came in the, ple- in the flesh through the man Jesus through the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ. And when you see the Father's role in this, who represents that incarnation of Christ, you see the Father coming and pleading both with first the younger son to extend grace, but also to extend grace to the elder son and beckon him to come into the celebration, which is in fact historically where Israel is. Jesus is the Messiah, Yahweh incarnated in the flesh, and he's beckoning his people to, um, to join the celebration of this new covenant that he is establishing, and they are in unbelief, just like the elder son. So this is the context that Jesus is dealing with here in his immediate context. So, so with that in mind, we wanna step back and say, okay, and so what is Jesus teaching us and revealing to us about the heart of God through these stories, through this story in particular? So we, we'll move on. Uh, verse, so that was, that's the setting, it's verses one and two. Then we jump down to the parable in verse 25. This part takes place after, rec, after the reconciliation of the younger brother. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, which is very interesting. The elder son is comfortable in the location of work, but he's not comfortable in the location of intimacy and celebration. He stays out in the field, he holds back, and he hears the celebration going on. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. If you're the lost sheep, and if you're the younger brother, these stories are really good news. If in thinking you were a follower of Jesus, but you came, became instead a follower of religion, this highlights the very real reality of grace envy that creeps into our heart when we've drifted from intimacy with the heart of the Father to becoming a worker instead. And he is not happy. Verse 28, then he became angry and didn't want to go in. 
So his father came out and pleaded with him. Look at this. We have this, last week we saw this disrespect of the elder, of the younger son demanding his inheritance so he could go off and do whatever. And the father responds in graciousness and kindness. Here we have this defiant elder son who's also acting very inappropriate, refusing to come to the father's celebration and, and, and essentially throwing some version of an adult temper tantrum so that the father actually comes out to the younger son, not with anger, not with offense, but he pleads with him as well. Do you see where Jesus is displaying a heart of grace both to the irreligious and also to the religiously lost? And so Jesus is just as the father is just and tender and compassionate with the elder son as he is in the younger son. So this is him coming to the elder son in grace and in mercy. And, uh, and, and he says he pleads with him, verse 29. But he, the elder brother, eldest son, replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you and I have never disobeyed your orders Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But notice what he says in verse 30. Not when my brother returns, but when this son of yours came who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. And look at the father's reply. Son, he said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. It's as if he's saying, you don't need to ask for just one goat because all the goats already belong to you. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And this is how the parable ends. Jesus ends it like a Breaking Bad episode. There's no resolution here. We're, we're like at the edge of our seats pondering what happened next in the action of the story. Now, why might he do this? Because maybe he ended the story that way as if to turn to the Pharisees and say, so what are you going to do? Will you remain in the field in your bitterness? Or will you embrace what God is doing and enter the celebration with joy? And then we move over to the book of Acts and we see some chose to enter that celebration while others held back. So we see here in this story, which is why it's unfortunate that we've come to think of it as the story of one son, because the story of both sons have a lot of wisdom to speak into our lives. Both the older and younger son were lost to the true heart of the father. The younger son manifested his lostness in rebellion and taking his money and squandering his life and his money on wild living, an absolute rebellion, a very clear case of living anti-Christ. The elder son was lost to the heart of the father by avoiding intimacy with the father by becoming a worker for the father but he was just as lost to the true heart of the father as the eldest son, as the younger son was. 
So here we have this elder son. So in the sense of having a revelation of the father's heart, he was lost as well. But he was lost as a worker in his father's house. We might say he represents what we might call the religiously lost. And again, when I say lost and found, I am not entertaining a narrative about where they would go if they got hit by a bus or hit by a runaway camel and whether or not they would fly to heaven or hell. I'm not talking about that because even though those are realities that we can talk about and I believe in the afterlife and all that, Jesus is not telling this story so that we remember after we die, oh, this is what he was talking about. No, he's telling these stories to address how we live our life in the here and the now. And what Jesus is saying is that here and now, whether you're religious or irreligious, if you don't know the heart of the Father, you're gonna live separate and lost. And so, and so, so both of them are lost to the heart of the father. The younger son became lost by becoming a prodigal. The older son became, became lost by becoming a worker. But even though there was a prodigal and a worker, what we see from this story is the father simply saw them both as sons. R- regardless of how they redefined their understanding of themselves, their identity of themselves, the father never renegotiated the identity that he saw in them. He sees them both as sons. Look at this little bit as we think about the psychology of the elder son in verse 28. Let's read it one more time, these three verses. Then he became angry. He didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you. We have to pay attention to the language that the older son uses. I've been slaving many years for you and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. So let's look at that paragraph and let's kind of point out and highlight some of the symptoms of the elder brother's mistaken view of the father. One of the symptoms is anger. Now, I haven't, I am sure that there are women in here who struggle with anger. My particular, particular anecdotal experience isn't that sisters or the ladies in my family, they haven't processed a lot of that particular struggle with me. However, I've had plenty of men process that struggle with me. And one of the things that you find out, like they may, they may come to the pastor, well, half the time they were forced to come to the pastor. Also, men don't volunteer to come see the pastor nearly as often as as ladies tend to do. But they're, they're forced to come into the pastor. Maybe they came on in and, and there's some presenting issue. But it's amazing the more I talk with them, the more the presenting issue fades to the back and this, inter, this inner boiling point of rage and anger is soothing. And what is interesting is, the, is that this son represents anger because of his slavish obligation. And there is a point. In fact, I've learned a lot growing older in, my, in tracking my own journey and talking with other men. Midlife crisis? I, I don't know what I thought. I, I thought growing up that was, oh, that's when men realize they're old, they don't want to be old anymore, so they get some Rogaine and a sports car. 
And, and you kind of see that, that trope kind of played out comedically in movies and so forth. But what I've learned is midlife crisis comes from a man finally facing how angry it is that he has killed his passion of his heart so that he could perform a lifestyle of duty and obligation. And every time he did that, the church and the family clapped. Yeah, dad, kill your heart more, go further into obligation, and so they just keep doing it. And at some point, there's this breaking point where they have to face the rage and anger. If you are an angry Christian, sorry, see my ADD mind just went to elf. Don't be an angry elf, but anyway, <laughs> sorry. I'm just bringing you into my struggle, okay? I'm bringing it back in here. <clears throat> A lot of times, if anger characterizes the atmosphere of our heart over a prolonged, a prolonged period of time, we need to reach out and get some help. Talk to a friend or even a counselor or to someone that you see as a spiritual director or mentor of some type, because that is not normal. A state, a consistent state of anger is indicative to a toxic view of God. So the God that you're worshiping may not even be the God that Jesus came to reveal. It's another God of your own making. And one of the things that happens when we worship a God of our own making, I'm talking about emotionally. Intellectually, none of us would say that. We would all answer the right questions. You would pass the theological te test. But what I have learned is Christians have a theological conceptual God and an emotional God that they live with every single day. And oftentimes they are not the same deity. And so when it, one of the characteristic symptoms that's indicative that I've fallen for some deceptive view of the heart of God that's not in keeping with what Jesus revealed is anger. Another symptom is his inability to rejoice in the Father's mercy toward others. Have you ever had grace envy? I know I have. That's when you're sitting there unhappy, even though you've done the straight and narrow walk, you've done all the things God expected, and here's some heathen fresh off the sinful boat gets doused with mercy and grace and God's blessing their life. And we're, they're, they're being paraded in testimonies and you're smiling because we're all smiling, high-fiving, look what God has done. And you're like, ah, oh, I deserve that. I deserve that over them. Or it's this inability to see, wait a minute, wait a minute, I've worked really hard to keep myself clean. Why is God still being gracious from this new believer who's still in the midst of their sinful lifestyle? That doesn't make sense. And, and, if, and if God's gonna let them get away with it, the church needs to step in and make them feel some guilt and shame so they understand the necessity of making up some changes and cleaning themselves up before they grow in the grace of God. But that's not how the Father works. So, so he's characteristic of this jealousy that he feels, this envy he feels over the mercy of the younger son who didn't do the right thing in the same way he did. So he can't rejoice in the father's mercy toward others. The other characteristic that this older brother displays is that he has a slave identity rather than a son's identity. And this, I would submit, is the core issue of the elder son. You remember what he says? He doesn't rejoice in the intimacy of staying in his father's household. He says, I have been what? Slaving for you for all these years, yet you have not offered me a visible reward. You remember what the younger son said? 
I'm not worthy to be his son, but maybe he'll take me back as a hired hand. The elder son just immediately grabbed the identity of the hired hand, the worker. And so he has the slave mentality rather than a son's mentality, just like the younger brother did. So the younger brother got there through a lifestyle of sin. The elder brother got there through a lifestyle of dutiful obligation. The second indicated symptom of the elder son's mistaken view of the father is this scorekeeping obligation rather than love motivated obedience. He's keeping score because he knows that so much work ought to equal a, 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 a certain amount of blessings. Ultimately, he was blind to the gracious heart of his father. And then it says, he became angry and he didn't want to go in. And as we said, Jesus leaves the story there. This grace envy caused the older son to remain outside of the celebration of joy. And in this context, Jesus is the point of celebration of joy. And that's what the tax collectors and sinners are enjoying, whereas the Pharisees are keeping themselves cut off from the presence of God and the presence of joy that's found in the incarnation of the son. The older son missed the tree of life because he preferred the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so many times we do as well because grace is messy. She likes to dance outside of the boundaries of karma. And as humans, we don't like that very much, but she does. And so he remains outside and he can't enter into that joy because of that deception of that tree. It's easier to live by rules on some level. Tell me what to do, what not to do, and I will conform. This is not what Jesus is inviting us into. Not blind, resentful conformity, but transformation from walking in, in, within, in intimacy with God, living from a revelation that you already are all you need to be. You already have all that you need because Christ is all in all and he lives within you as the hope of glory. And the invitation is to move from that place where we see that. We don't live from the impulse of knowledge of good and evil, morality, immorality, rules. We live from the impulse of life that emanates from within our gut. Because this, if you remember, is where Jesus said, rivers of living water are intended to be flowing from those of us who follow him. If we are not mindful Spiritual work becomes a replacement for spiritual intimacy. If we are not mindful, spiritual work becomes a replacement for spiritual intimacy. And what do I mean by that? I, I define spiritual intimacy simply as living from an active awareness of our spiritual connection with God and Christ. Too many believers are trying to renew their, con their connection. They're trying to get close to God again. They're trying to get back to God. This is an impossibility. You can never be lost from him. All you need to do is change your perception and realize he hasn't gone anywhere and you haven't traveled anywhere that he didn't go with you. And so there is no getting back to God. There's just pausing and recognizing he never left you that he has always resided in you regardless of where your journey may have taken you. 
And I love then what we see about the father's heart here. The very first word he says to him in verse 31 is what? Son. He begins by speaking the son's true identity as son rather than his perceived identity as a slave. And so the very first thing that the father attempts to do with both of these sons of his is to reacclimate them to embrace the identity that he's given them. They didn't earn it. They couldn't work to keep it. It was bestowed upon them as a gift of his grace and mercy. Man-created religion makes slaves out of sons and daughters. And if we are moving into that place where it's obligation and slavery, we might be missing the heart of the Father. If our obedience doesn't flow from joyful love, then we might be missing the Father's heart. He reminds him, you're always with me. Conversely, what he's saying is, I am always with you. And everything I have is yours. Do you see this? It's as if he's saying, you didn't, because the the accusation is, you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. I'm not even worried. Look, I'm not even bold enough to ask for the cow. Just a goat. But you've never even given me a goat. And what is the father's reply? Everything is yours. It's as if the father was saying, all you had to do was receive your blessing. All you had to do is say something. There was no hoops to jump through and there was no certain point of obedience you had to earn in order to get offered a celebration. But this is the son's perception. He was waiting to be blessed because of his work rather than seeking to be blessed because of the father's grace. Do we live a lifestyle of obedience? We do. Do we do it as a bartering system for the Father's blessing and protection? No, we do not. This is, a, is not a transaction. This is a relationship. Now, we have a part to play in that if we refuse to embrace the God revealed in Christ and instead opt for a God made in the image of man-made religion, then we are gonna be frustrated. But if we understand that our Father is good, He owns everything, and therefore everything is open to us, then what we do is we live a lifestyle of gratitude and respectful request, asking God to do for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. There is so much resentment and frustration about God, what God has not done, that sometimes when we get in that place, we have to stop and be asked, well, if God answered every request you made of him yesterday, how would your life and the world be different? Many times, we would have to reflect on the previous 24 hours and go, uh, it wouldn't be much different at all. Well, why not? You have a God. One of the benefits for believing in God is you ought to live like you have a God. But to believe in God and live like you don't have one, yeah, that's gonna be frustrating for you. That's gonna breed resentment 
but to believe in God and live like you have a God so that you are in a perpetual conversation with your father and you are free as a child to ask from him to give to you that which you cannot give yourself. Then you will find that process of the request increases your conscious awareness of living life with God, not simply for God. And James addresses this. In James chapter 1, we read these verses. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and covenant and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. If we are going to be of service to others, we need to be almost gratuitous gluttons for grace. We need to be continually in that posture of asking God to provide for us and do in our hearts what we cannot do for ourselves because the ministry we give to others must flow from the ministry that we have received ourselves. Remember what Paul says? When you encounter trials, one of the things that's taking place is God is empowering you with the grace that you will then be able to share with those who suffer as well. So if you want to be used by God, let me give you the fine print of that prayer. And if you said, Lord, I want to minister to others. I want to be here for the sake of others. I want to be used by you. What you are actually saying is, enroll me in your plan so that when I suffer, I encounter your grace so I am empowered then to walk in the suffering of others. That's what we're asking for when we're being asked to be used by God because that's what, those are the things, your suffering, your point of weakness, those things that you are embarrassed about, those things that you finally start lying at your accountability group because it's just so darn embarrassing to come every week and confess the same thing, right? I get it. I've, I've lied through lots of accountability groups. And, uh, and so much so we all lied to one another so much that we added, we added the accountability question, did you lie about anything you said today in the group? And at first it worked. We would come clean and then eventually we started lying about that question as well. But uh, I don't even know how I got distracted and all of that. Um, oh, those things, my friends, are your place of strength. It is the place of encounter. It is the place where you have to soak in the mercy of God. It is the place that makes grace a living reality, not a theoretical doctrine. Because with, those weaknesses are the point that invite you to be most aware of your need for God's mercy. And if you will encounter him there, it will make you a real human being who is equipped to walk with the suffering of other human beings beings where the elder brother is at this point he is unable to share life with anyone else because he has become a self-centered black hole of resentment and self-pity that is not the gospel way that's not what it means to be spiritual spirituality following Jesus sets us free to bring everything to the Lord, even those things that embarrass us and that we're struggling with and that have, that break our hearts because that is the point at which you will learn to incarnate the grace of God in your own life and you'll be able to share it with others. I know I've said this before. It's been many years since I've been, 
but one of the best place, best seasons of my life was when I was working with and supporting recovering addicts and alcoholics, and I was privileged to go to some of the AA meetings with them. Because here you see a community of broken people admitting their brokenness without shame so that they can also encounter the grace and mercy that brings healing to their lives that they can then give away to other people. I think AA might be the best church growth strategy than anything I've read in any of the seminars or books my entire time as a Christian because of that reality. So, so we don't have to be embarrassed of those things. We have to bring those in. We have to ask God to work with us in the midst of those struggles that we have. The desire to receive the Father's blessings and the desire to be a blessing to others are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they're complementary. Ask the Father to empower you to live out the vision he has put in your new covenant trustworthy heart. Ask him, ask him, and he will respond. He may not respond in ways that you've read in books. He may not respond in ways that you've been told he will respond, but I promise you he will respond and you'll start cultivating this life of intuition that the apostle Paul in Galatians 5 calls keeping in step with the spirit. It means living from an intuitive awareness of the Spirit of God within, and when the Spirit moves in a direction, you are intuitive enough to move right along with Him. But if you're missing that, ask Him. Ask the Father. Ask the Father about, maybe you've been asking for years now, continue asking. There's a parable about that we're going to look at in July, in fact. So, have you ever been through a season in which Christian religion robbed you of Jesus-centered joy? What has this season revealed to you about your false views of God's gracious heart? What I am asking you to do is wherever you write things down, whether it's in your note app on your phone or in a notebook, doesn't have to be right now, but sometime this afternoon, I want you to ponder this question and write out what are the false views that you've taken away from these seasons. I remember we were told to do this and the situation was reversed and I felt very cynical about the exercise. It's the first time that I encountered my first major idolatry that I've set up with my image of God. So I did this exercise and I thought about it and immediately not that as a pastor, I'm endorsing watching movies that are beyond rated G or anything like that. This is not a personal endorsement. It's just how it happened. I remember sitting there, and the first image that came to my, God, my mind was Marlon Brando in a tuxedo. Because immediately I realized my God was the Godfather. You want him on your side, because there's a lot of stuff that he can do for you and he can execute some pretty effective vengeance on your enemies but it's not out of love he's got this big gun to your head called eternal wrath and so he'll make you an offer that you can't refuse and so it's this weird relationship where there's fear and no intimacy and yet there's this fear of departing because I really want his protection and blessings and as silly as that sound it it altered the atmosphere of my heart. 
That was a moment I repented. It was a moment I laid down that false view of the transactional God and began to explore something a little bit more relational. So whatever they may be, you, you may have entertained false ideas about God. If you open up some space and ask God to show you what they are, he will write them down. Then prayerfully write down the truth of the Father that is revealed in the life and teachings of Jesus. In other words, how is the God revealed in Christ a challenge to the image of God that you have taken away for whatever reason? If the image of God is not in unity with the God revealed in Jesus, feel free to, to repent, to change your mind, to adjust your understanding and bring it more in line with the truth revealed by Jesus. Take note of the truths that challenge the lies. Repent of the false and affirm and declare the truth. So, as we get ready to come to the Lord's table, as we get ready to take communion, I want you to take the space that's created here and to begin to engage prayerfully with God. Ask the Father to give you what you need for your life to be an abundant blessing to those you have been called to serve. Because once your life becomes the movement of a blessing to those you've been called to serve, it will change the atmosphere of your heart. The question that I ask myself weekly that I will pass on to you is to look at your week, look at your life, and ask yourself, am I in traction or am I in distraction? When I'm distracted, it, it might be something innocent, it might be something toxic, but when I am distracted, I am not proactively engaging in being used by God to be a blessing to others. When I am in traction rather than distraction, it is because I've altered my perspective and I recognize that every day is an opportunity to display the heart of God to someone, love and mercy. And so, so you ask yourself, where exactly have I been? God, would you give me what I need in order to be an abundant blessing to everyone I've been called to serve? Ask the Father to empower you to live out the vision he has put in your new covenant trustworthy heart. It's already there. Ask the Holy Spirit to bring that up and out of you. There is something he's equipped you for. Paul even says, there are good works prepared beforehand for us to do. What are your good works? What has he put in your heart? It's the thing that's gonna make you come alive in the next season of your walk with Jesus and understand the reason why you're walking here on earth. What might change about your life if you had the audacity to make this a habit? If the habit of your life was to empower me to be an abundant blessing in the lives of others, what might the next two years of your look like? your life look like, particularly if you've been distracted from that proactive vision because you're so frustrated with the disappointments of life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the heart of a father who is abundant, who is good, and whose posture toward us is mercy and grace. You call us to yourself by bringing us a revelation of who we are as your sons and daughters. And we pray that that vision would take traction in our hearts, that we would be mindful of thinking through what might you be calling us to in this next season of my life? 
And as you reveal it, we pray that we would be empowered to not only do the work of the kingdom, but we would find that we're doing it from a place of intimacy, that we are working with you, not simply for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.